0: Welcome
1: to Activated: The Future of Content. Your, this lovely voice that you hear this morning, crooning to you on this <laughs> cloudy morning in Washington D.C. is your boy OG Baca. Oh. No longer the hair Naughty god body, I've oh, dropped the top on them.
0: That is true.
1: Their live stream. Oh wow! Yes. Yeah, you so got a haircut. We're we're changing things up for the wintertime. You know, it's about to be no shave November, so I'm about to. You know,
0: is that is that going to happen? I want to try. Yeah? I want to try. Get mm-hmm. a, what's the theme for November? No Shave? No Shave November. Oh. Is that like, is that Movember or something? Mm-hmm. Same thing. Okay. All right.
1: And so I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Miss Fatima. Tima. Fatima. We're going to get you to... A...
0: Yeah. We're... Well, I guess I was Fatih. I'm Fatih Fatima. And or that... Tima. Tima's... Like, platinum mommy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> platinum hair mommy. <laughs> and... Um... <laughs> The other voice you hear today is our is our guest, um, a writer and philosopher um, and thought leader, thought sharer uh, that we've met here at uh, Eaton. And, you know, we love to bring in the people that we bounce a lot of ideas off of. So um, that's Mr. Barrett Holmes Pittner. Hey, how's it going? Thanks. <laughs> yeah. What's I, up, man? I, I'm all those things. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I wanted to bring Barrett on today because... Um, You know, like I said, we've talked to him a lot. He's a member here at Eaton House. Um, But we also started working uh, with him recently on the launch of his think tank, uh, the Sustainable Culture Lab, um, which we'll get into a little bit later. But, you know, with launching the think tank, we've, uh, you know, launched a podcast, we've had a launch event, uh, we produced a zine. Uh, talking about many of the goals and philosophies that back up uh, what the Sustainable Culture Lab is, and so you know we're bringing Baron on to break it down for us, talk about you know where you're from, your history, how you came about these ideas, why you do the work that you do, and um, you know share some ideas about the world, man.
0: Yeah. So which which question do you want me to start with? <laughs> <laughs> so let's
1: start with like the basics. Um, what what do you do? What do you, what is your work? Because you could you could say you wear a lot of hats, huh?
0: Yeah, I guess I do wear a lot of hats. Well, I guess let's see. It's a good. It should be an interesting, simple question. But I'm a writer. I write a lot. Um, and but as I and I would write about like race, culture, and politics, and I would my pieces would appear in the Daily Beast, the BBC, the Guardian, other places. Um, but it, like in my heart of hearts, even though I was a, I'm a writer, journalist, went to school for that, I was always a philosopher. And one of the the big t- like push and pull with journalism is making sure that your your voice doesn't shape the story too much so that mm-hmm. you can provide like an objective truth. And, and I've always aspired to do that with my journalistic work. But as you look at enough truth objectively, you kind of are able to see the world and see what's happening in a yeah. way that other people aren't going to be able to because they're not getting that level of exposure. And so from that, it's there's I felt there was an obligation to articulate the truth that i see in a way that makes sense to people and that becomes the development of philosophy and language to articulate how you see the world in a way that hopefully can help people uh move throughout the world Mm -hmm. in uh the best way they can because if you don't if you can't describe your environment then it's going to be very difficult for you to Uh, Live within it in a healthy way because you won't actually know what's going on what's going on in that way so let's
1: talk about like your Background, you know, we talked about your your writer and I want to get to your philosophy a little bit later but where are you from and was there anything that kind of in your childhood that kind of shaped like your philosophy or like The work that it led you to do like were you always a writer or?
0: yeah uh, so no, I I was not always a writer uh, I think in middle school and high school, English was probably the class I had the least amount of interest in. I was like, really? a, I was a math guy, and I liked uh, soccer a bunch. So at a certain point, school was just like too easy, and so I just kind of cared more about sports than mm-hmm. classes. Um, but I'm from at I'm from the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, Marietta, Georgia. It's a predominantly white uh, community. I'm African American, and it was like the hotbed of Southern conservative thought. Like Mm. Newt Gingrich was my rep growing up. Um, And, you know, once he left, the next rep then became the senator. And so it's still like that influential part of, you know, conservative thought that dominates the South and now kind of dominates American thinking. And so I think growing up in that environment where you kind of had the the best, I guess you could say, of conservative belief. (laughs) (laughs) So AAA
1: conservative
0: belief. (laughs) Yeah, like the creme de la creme of conservative thought was what was shaping my upbringing. And it was very easy to look at that and say, this is just ridiculous. There's really no legitimacy in any of these arguments. Would you
1: say that like... Were you like indoctrinated into the thought or did you always feel like you were like outside of that like my experience wasn't like a part of that like
0: what was your Uh, view of that alright so when you're a kid you don't you're not really aware of how you you think you just think you know like it kind of takes a while for you to wrap your self around how your brain processes stuff which it's a weird thing to say but you kind of the idea that you get to know yourself more when you're in your 20s no i your teens it's because like you're more aware of how your brain has been processing information for like two decades right and so when i got older i realized that there was a moment when i was growing up that i think set me apart from all contemporaries and it wasn't something that i tried to manufacture it's just how my brain saw the Mm -hmm. world and 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 how it What happened was, sometime in elementary school, for all African Americans in this predominantly white environment, there's a moment where you realize that you're getting discrimination or some sort of abuse just because of the color of your skin. It has nothing to do with anything that you've done or whatever. It's just, you're black and they feel the need to say that you aren't good at stuff or you can't get things. Mm -hmm. And at this point, I noticed that a lot of my classmates, my African American classmates, kind of went in one or two ways they either internalized this well they they internalized it both both ways both ways but one of the ways was they internalized it and said what can i do to like make myself better so that these white people don't do negative things to me Mm -hmm. and then there was another group that internalized it and said i'm not going to do anything that these white people say i'm going to go in like another direction i'm going to be distinctly something that's Mm -hmm. not white Mm -hmm. and I looked at it and I just thought that this notion that someone could say that I was bad at something for no reason apart from the color of my skin which I have absolutely nothing to do with like I didn't pick who my parents are I didn't pick where I live was just completely insane and if they could make that determination off of that fact then they could make any kind of determination about me at absolutely any time with zero substance so i just from like fourth grade maybe third grade just thought that where i lived was the most absurd place ever Hmm. and nothing made any sense and no one's opinion or mattered at all there was like a template you had to follow where it's like i need to go to school and not get in trouble and do this stuff just so that like i don't like Cause a hassle and make my life like it's almost like difficult. you saw the
1: wires or the like, yeah, you saw the the strings behind the puppets yeah. and it just was like, I'll deal with it. But
0: for the longest time, it was just none of this makes any sense. Yeah, the opinions of the people around me don't matter because if they do matter, they can they feel empowered to change them at any minute, any minute. Yeah, and if you don't have to stick to what you believe ever or have any kind of consistency in what you think then are you even thinking do i need to listen to anything that you say yeah and that that's basically how i've thought since i don't know elementary school and i didn't realize until in my 20s that no one else but really anyone else thought, like, thought that. like that <laughs> i just thought like a, a bunch of people did so this overall led
1: to like your development of philosophy of your philosophy and like how you see the world 100 percent. yeah yeah and and so let's talk about now like what that philosophy is because we've talked about I think what's really dope about the conversations that we've had here is how we talk about applying language mm-hmm. to experiences and things like that. So you introduced the word to me, and right. that word led huh. to essentially a philosophy of how to live your life, yeah, or or how we could do go through life. So let's talk about this word that you uh, came up with, okay. and. um what let's take it back to what's the word and then what influenced you to come up with this word like the specific instance or what was going on and said okay I'm trying to figure this out or what were you grappling with
0: okay so I'm I'm presuming that the word we're talking about is ethnocide because I you know I've had, I have a handful of words <laughs> that I that I use now um so ethnocide um so this word came up I, I came up with this word after a couple of years of, of really thinking and exploring this linguistic impediment that really kind of presented itself as I started writing my pieces more consistently because uh, as an opinion columnist, you put your ideas out there, and the the hope is that the idea that you're conveying other people will understand what you're trying to say. Mm -hmm. Um and that there's a and also the hope is that there's a language to convey your idea you know like because objects and things in the world exist before there's a word to say what that is right you know so you the hope is that you can have a word to describe what's around you but sometimes there may not be that word Mm -hmm. um so I was writing pieces and people were enjoying them but not the responses I would get would be kind of askew from what I expected. And that kind of enforced that I was seeing things slightly differently. And so then I wanted to modify my pieces to try to really succinctly articulate what I was and trying to And what wasn't say.
1: connecting, like what do you think was going askew for the reader?
0: So there's a, it happened over like a series of articles, but the most noteworthy would probably be this one I wrote in August 2015. It was, uh, it was about Donald Trump. It was mm-hmm. it was called you know okay this Trump thing isn't funny anymore and it was the first piece mainstream piece to compare Donald Trump to fascism
2: mm-hmm.
0: and the point of the piece wasn't solely to say Donald Trump's a fascist like you know Mussolini or Hitler or whatever it was to talk about how America is not alarmed about this type of fascism and the mm-hmm. reason we're not alarmed is because America has just had this kind of fascism forever we just don't call it fascism right so like the treatment that my ancestors in charleston south carolina received in the 1850s 60s clearly before that when it was slavery was akin to any kind of european fascism yeah. but we don't call that here and call that fascism in america we just call that tradition or something yeah you know patriotism yeah. right and right. so i wrote the piece and everyone really rallied around the idea that i'm comparing donald trump to this these evil people in europe but that wasn't the point the point was comparing him to the evil people that live in america that america produces that we just don't call evil Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and when you try to make a point that's that to me is so clear, and I think it's clear to me because from like elementary school, I was just like this is where I live is meaningless. Right. <laughs> no, everything is here is crazy. To see so many people not get that that's what I was trying to say mm-hmm. was quite alarming. And so then I just had spent a while just thinking about this and how to articulate how I see the world. And as I tried with like the existing norms of, you know, saying systemic racism or white supremacy or this, that and the other, it wasn't resonating. So I decided that I needed to start looking for new words or developing words to describe what I saw. And that's where the word ethnocide came to be, because uh, historically, ethno isn't like your ethnicity as we talk about today it's your culture right um and so i felt that america is a society that inside is like homicide or suicide it means killing and so ethnocide is the killing of culture so i felt that america actually suffers from this destruction of culture and that cult and it stems from the transatlantic slave trade where the goal of that was to extract african people destroy their culture mm-hmm. and then have a society based around this normalization of cultural destruction that impacts and influences everyone in the society right. and that I felt succinctly articulated how I've always seen the world mm-hmm. um, and it's crazy to think it took you know 30 years or so yeah to for me to have a word that I felt described, how i've always seen the world so it's like it's like a like a 30-year window where you're not capable of articulating, of articulating describing of your surrounding yeah especially considering that that's something you noticed as a kid and you still weren't able to like people still don't see that as adults right yeah i yeah and i will say well like the thing that's weird about not weird but as a kid you're just feelings. Right. Like you yeah. feel the stuff as a child. And so the goal is that you feel something and then that, that feeling um, resonates and connects with other people. Mm-hmm. And you have like
2: you, you join
0: people that have the same feeling. Yeah. I'm this person who felt something that I don't think most people felt. And so then I didn't have that like emotive connection to like really anyone I really understand. That. You Which, weren't able to find other kids who felt the same way or even adults for that matter. Right. It's not like you were able to communicate how you felt and then you were able to find a community around you or a group of people who felt the same way. Yeah. And it's it's super interesting in hindsight where like to other people, you know, I played sports and I had fun. I had friends and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I kind of had like a fairly lonely like childhood mm-hmm. yeah but you know you guys know me i'm funny i can have fun i can make friends yeah and everything but yeah. like there's like a loneliness to it but to me i never felt lonely because it's the only way i knew how to see the world mm-hmm. and if people didn't understand it then that was fine because like the space i was living in was already meaningless
1: yeah so like you already got it
0: right so like if they didn't want to be around me hmm I was perfectly okay with that because I knew that if they wanted to be around me, the society I lived in meant that if they changed their mind tomorrow, based on absolutely nothing that I've ever done, they'd be perfectly empowered and feel justified in doing so. So there was no like, like uh, consistency. Yeah, you didn't get in the space. So like, I didn't, I didn't actually feel lonely. It was just like I'm just in a place that doesn't matter. You
1: know, I think was so interesting. I think when I talk to you, I think of like the people that kind of get that understanding of the world like late in life and how they kind of like grapple with it or like to understand that you know how I see it is like we're fucked right or like it's all it's all going to shit and it's always been to shit but someone Mm -hmm. who understand that understood that from like an early childhood or someone who was introduced to that topic like early on you're kind of at what I would call an advantage of everyone else when it comes to when you're finally figuring out, like, oh, wow, maybe the structures that are built up don't make sense. Or maybe they, I believe in something that it wasn't. You know, when that kind of, sh- those structures come crumbling down when you realize that at an older age, that could be shocking to the system. Right. Where you, you've kind of already understood it. Or there's many people, you know, it's like black folks in general who uh, parents may have been woke right. for some sense. And it's like, okay, you're kind of ahead of what you're against. Mm-hmm. You know, so... um I think it's really, I I relate to that, I mean, from my childhood as well, kind of being, like, different than everyone in your environment. And I understand, like, the loneliness of, like, I, I even have to deal with even the dumbing yourself down, as you would call it, to, like, yeah. relate to everyone else or, like, mm-hmm. even in school and things like that. And how that's, like, a form, I that's why I love it, because that's, like, a form of ethnocide that you, yeah. know, you end up pushing out. Yeah, you, you've you're to
0: kill your own internal culture exactly. so that you can, like thrive in a place that lacks culture exactly yeah Um, there's so many pressures like that and uh and yeah like uh, so how does the
1: sustainable culture lab that you've you know established now like work against that and now that we used to like the other word that you created as well too
0: yeah so great question so with with scl the there's a series of things that we we're, we're doing but first and foremost, we have to inject the language of ethnocide into the space, because to make proper change, you have to be able to have the right types of conversations. Yeah. And the conversations that we have in our society have a have an underpinning, a foundation of justifying ethnocide. And that could be 1%, it could be 100%, mm-hmm. but... That justification of ethnocide to whatever degree it is undermines our capacity to make the change we want in the world. And so making sure that we uh, inject ethnocide, the word, into the discourse so that people can then like look at their environment slightly differently right. and feel empowered that they have the language to articulate what is wrong, then that allows like, a radical amount of change to happen because, yeah. you know, it's it's kind of, say say something bad's happening to you and you're scribbing for help and, like, no one can hear you. Well, then nothing's going to change. Like, something right. that bad thing is just going to continue to happen. Now, say you don't even know what the word help is. Right. Then you're even at, like, a, a further disadvantage and I think as a society, like that's that's our discourse without the word "ethnocide." Like yeah. We we'll try to scream for help, right. but the word "help" has never been created, right? So you don't know what you're asking for, right? You might be asking for something close to help. Mm-hmm. You know, I want something to help. good
1: to happen to me, so that would help me through this situation or something like that.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And so the first part of SCL is 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 empowering Americans, especially communities of color, people that really emotionally viscerally need to be able to use this word to describe their environment you know empowering them to do that and then the the other side is we've lived in a place that's ethnocidal and people aren't aware of it and so then once you see it and you see how ethnocide is everywhere and it shapes our entire society people get quite sad um, right and then they also realize that they don't know how to do something besides ethnocide mm. so now you have to give another word and right. like an, an, an opposing philosophy to empower people to create stuff that counters the division of ethnocide right and and real quick I'm not sure if I've fully like defined ethnocide on this yeah, on yeah. this. Uh, radio show but so real quick it's the destruction of culture and the preservation of the people so uh what the transatlantic slave trade took african you know europeans took african bodies from the continent with the goal of stripping african people of their culture so that they were only like african in body right and that that body could be used and exploited in the new world in perpetuity and then colonizers built their entire civilization around the hope that this division would remain forever where like cities were built this way. Mm-hmm. People were given names such as white and black to denote who gets to be exploited and who gets to exploit, who gets to benefit from from systemic systems of exploitation and who right. gets to suffer from these systems. You know, towns were built with like railroad tracks dividing the black side and the white side and right. like money gets allocated to white schools and not black schools and all sorts of stuff mm-hmm. just to continue this ethnocidal division and our, our language regarding race derives from ethnocide you know we're gonna like europeans created races right so that they could be divided and one could be it could be easy to determine who gets exploited and who doesn't and then there's all like there's ling- linguistic impediments where as an african-american if i talk about the united states there's a cultural pressure for me to say we yeah. it's like no right i didn't have anything to do with like with these ideas that these Europeans came up with. Like, Europeans forcefully prevented anyone that looked like me from having any influence on these ideas. Right. So, should I say we?
1: Right. Does that apply? Right.
0: Of course not. But culturally, there's a narrative that we're together. No. That just foundationally doesn't exist. And so, once you see that, you know, it's tough to deal with. So, you have to come up with another thing, which is... uh, second word which is evtopia and that's spelled e-u-topia uh, and e-u in greek means good and uh, topia in greek means place mm-hmm. and this kind of is like i view it as an extension a progression beyond the word utopia because the word utopia is a joke it's a satire and the the word was invented in 1516 by thomas moore he wrote this satirical novel utopia and he made this word out Mm -hmm. of the blue for this book and he got the greek prefix eu which is pronounced ev Mm -hmm. um and and that means good and the greek prefix ou which means non-existent and he cut off the e and cut off the o to make a new word that means non-existent good place and so after Mm -hmm. he made this europeans then went on this bizarre journey to find and create utopias or non-existent good places and that's been a disaster and so my philosophy on countering ethnocide is to, is to create good places that can exist which would be an evtopia, which is good in place put together yeah so
1: what do you think is in it you know now that we have defined ethnocide and we have defined eftopia and now so the sustainable culture lab its goals is essentially to help people find their eftopia or to create that place or how did
0: that work? Or together? is the SCL basically your version of creating the good place where people right. can then take a little piece of that and create you know, it's like planting a tree and then the roots growing out. So yes, to all of that, but there's a lot of complexity to it because yeah. um so To create a good place, it's a a micro and a macro engagement where you have to help and educate people to make themselves like individually a good place. Yeah. Um, And then you also have to create the concepts for how do you create collective good places. And so um, a great example, I use this a lot, is the the plaza, like the town Mm -hmm. square. Where towns will have an understanding, they'll have a language to articulate the necessity of having a town square. Where people come, regardless of class, to the middle of town to do kind of nothing. Like they just socialize and hang out. It's not related to a job. They're not there to buy something. They're just there to socialize and build community and culture. And that is like the heartbeat of the city. Yeah, like the U.S. is a place that has always been opposed to that type of environment, especially when it comes to like communities of colors, African Americans. Yeah. they create a laws to prevent us from gathering because once we could gather, that would give us the opportunity to preserve our African culture mm-hmm. or articulate and discuss or share how, ideas, yeah. share ideas, and talk about how horrible chattel slavery was and that we need to do something to stop this from happening. And so culturally, like America has prevented the creation of good places, All right. uh, which like plazas. So like, you know, coming up with ideas and policies and language to articulate the necessity of that, because, you know, this is based in DC and DC is this really fascinating environment where there's like the local DC community that's a very strong African-American community that's been here for a long time in DC and Maryland. Yeah. Um, but then there's the global community, of people all around the world who, whether they are successful or not, their idea for being here in many ways is to create good places. Right. To make the world a better place. And so here, having a think tank in D.C., oh, and also due to there being a vibrant African-American community, there's a lot of art and culture and, and all that stuff. Having this combination, this mixture, while it can empower the communities of color in D.C., but it can also result in Policies and and papers that congressmen and and influential people can look at and say this is how I can articulate what good place good place policies could be could be and so that's why it's a cultural think tank where like DC yeah. is a place for a think tank but the focus of the think tank is culture um, and and the need for for creating good culture uh, I I'm going to be a little bit more of a nerd here but there's another example of like an evtopian concept that yeah, i'm awesome. really excited about it's this dutch word polderen oh right. you haven't
1: talked to me about this one yet
0: oh man it's the best and so <laughs> so so the dutch this is this is just fascinating like a third of that country is below sea level
2: mm-hmm.
0: and around the 1100s they said hey we need more land so we're gonna build dikes, dams, windmills, to pump out water and make the land that's below the sea, like our land. Mm. And so, in so doing that, the the land that they created, that they reclaimed, is called a polder. Okay. But when you make that polder, you know that when a big storm comes... It's going to go away. It could go away. Yeah. And so they have this philosophy of poldering that essentially means that everyone... Will put aside their differences, whether they you know that's political, religious, whatever, to save the polder, to save the land, to save the land. So there's a communal, and so poldering this idea like shapes the Dutch Parliament. Like they have never needed a majority party to run their government
1: because it's always like for the good of everyone or
0: for the good of it's always poldering. The They're like we can always form a coalition. We can always come together to pass the laws that are like. Necessary for the people because of poldering. And Mm -hmm. so, so there's, so that's poldering, but then you think about it and like most societies, the land is already there. You know, like you, 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 even if you're an explorer, like you cross that mountain and it's like, oh, wow, there's land and we're just going to live on this land. Right. The Dutch are like, let's make land. And so we're going to strategically put a canal here, a dike here, a windmill here. To make this amount of land available for the community. Right. And so now, like, every inch of a polder Mm -hmm. starts as communal space. And then Uh, you put houses on it. Then you turn it into farmland. Then you do whatever. But, like, it starts as the communal space because the community comes together. Right, to get it. It makes it. And as the Dutch population has grown over the 20th century, they just said, we'll just "Just make more polders. Right. like we'll just we'll just make new land. Right. And they've they've been quite um ambitious and have made like four pretty massive polders in the twentieth century alone wow. to just accommodate for more people. So that's like collective land mm-hmm. that then your house is on that. And and so like the couple of times I've been to the Netherlands I've always been astonished that people leave their curtains open. Like when you're at mm-hmm. when you're in your house, your butt, your curtains are open and you can look and see your into your neighbor's house because it's all like my space
1: is your space and we're all kind of even though it was even though I'm in my own home, it's like yeah, it's built on community land, so it's kind of like it's that, our space. How you interpret or how you move through life, understanding share shared yeah. space, yeah, makes and so you and there, there's a whole ways.
0: understanding that like the community helps raise these others' kids. Yeah. You know, like you can leave your kid with the neighbor; they got you, like the blinds are open
1: yeah you know yeah it's like it kind of lends to living life like that right those small actions and and so i think this, like like
0: this my idea of eftopian environment you know it's not a perfect thing it's not a utopia where it's perfection there's no tension there's not like there's a consistent amount of work that has to go into sustaining an eftopian space but this this idea of polder that they do in the netherlands I, i just find really fascinating that's really dope um
1: and you're going to send me on a YouTube tangent, like, probably later on this week. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a question. You know, we can talk about a lot of these ideas and these topics, but, you know, people are different kinds of learners. Some people are visual. Some people are hands-on. Some people, um, they just get it. So how do you kind of push out this information about ethnocide, eptopia sustainable culture lab? Like... Do you just go on podcasts and talk about it, or do you <laughs> write about it? Like, what do you? How do you get people converted to this?
0: Well, I guess all of the above is the answer I have to give because if I if I'm only good at writing and people need to get information many other ways, I have to find a way to become better at these other things, even mm-hmm. things I I'm not that fond of. Um, so yeah, I go on podcasts. Um, I write articles. Um, I'm going to start writing more and more articles specifically talking about ethnocide and eptopia. using that language. It's kind of difficult to use language that people don't even know exists yeah. <laughs> to, to yeah. write stuff. But there's going to be a growing shift towards that with Candor, We produced a, a zine. It's a, like a 20-page little booklet that describes the foundation of these ideas. And if you're in D.C., come by the Eaton. Or come by shopkeepers in the northeast, uh, yeah. and you can you can buy a copy. Um, so I have we have social media, we have a website. It's scl underscore community or scl dot community. The website is scl dot community. The social media, it's all scl underscore community, and you can learn from that. We're we're coming up with an events schedule at Eaton. The goal is to have an event um, about every month. Mm-hmm. Talking about some facet of either ethnocide and ethtopia, and how you can uh, you know use, the, use this language to uh, improve your life, and and we're going to continue developing more and more ways to get people to know this. I believe this is recorded, so that'll <laughs> yeah. that'll be on on YouTube or something like that. Yes, sir. Yeah.
1: So I want to go back to something you said earlier about. Um, kind of art. Um, you know, one of the big contributors to your to the zine and to your platform um has been another uh photographer and who's actually been a guest on our podcast, uh Kurth Bob. And um, you know, when he was on our podcast, he talked about kind of, you know, how he was introduced to these topics and how it kind of how, you know, same way that we have conversations here and we're talking about wellness and going through life, how he Grafts onto your idea and then how it influenced his philosophy. You talked
0: about me? Yeah, just a little bit. Oh, okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> how it influenced, you know, his philosophy and how that philosophy also influences his photography work and artwork that he puts out, his photography as art. And so I wanted to know kind of like, what are your thoughts on like this intersection between ethnocide, evtopia and art in creation as a method of like explaining the idea
0: yeah yeah so art's essential to the work of scl and i should have said that earlier um because let's see so philosophy is complicated it's sometimes you know to really articulate a good philosophical idea you'll need 400 pages and a lot of times philosophers aren't the best writers um so if we're relying on a poorly written 400 page book to make that philosophy something that people can use, there's really not that much of a chance that people are going to use it. Um, But if that philosophy can manifest itself into art, such as like a photo or a painting that allows people to feel the philosophy and maybe have, a word or a phrase that they can use to like empower them and focus them. Then now you're really onto something. And historically Mm -hmm. that's been, I think the most successful way that philosophy has, has impacted people's lives in, in, in the West and in Europe. You know, I think one of the best examples is the Renaissance. Like the, the, D'E Medici family were just these bankers that decided that they wanted to make Florence better and so they invested in a philosopher and they had the philosopher come by their house all the time. And they would have painters and sculptors come by the house and listen to the philosopher. Um, uh, And next thing you know, his philosophies were manifested in their paintings. His, hmm. the philosophy of, of town squares
1: came from one came, came, came from, from one, these the types of conversations of
0: where you need to create spaces for people to gather regardless of class you yeah. know to, to sustain community and when they gather in that place you need to make sure that that place is beautiful and that it has stuff that encourages people to be their best selves yeah and that's why that's partially how the renaissance was able to thrive what do you think was
1: the impetus um this may be off track a little bit but what do you think was the impetus for like that medici family that rich family to like invest in the arts was it it like could it just start from like i think this is cool and i want to see more of it in the world so here and now we have what we understand as how we live life
0: you know i it's one of those things where i I can't i can't really answer like i don't know why i saw the world how i saw the world it's like i didn't pick my brain to be in my head like it's just there and it took me like two decades or so to figure out how that thing was working yeah and so who knows what the de Medici's came up with or why they had this impetus. It could have been one of them that then convinced all the other ones. And, yeah. You know, this is, this is the, it could have been a conversation that lasted 10 years. It could have been a conversation that lasted five minutes that completely like swayed the family. Like, well, you know. You it, know what? He, he,
1: just to take a tangent and yeah. maybe clear into a little bit of what I'm thinking. Um, what I think about is like how we have like money and capitalism and how it leads us to a lot of bad things or like ethnocide in general. And this is, if you're thinking about what you're saying is like you had this family that now threw money behind, you know, creating art and creating Times Square. That actually was capitalism working for good?
0: Well, or so (laughs) I I guess I guess that answer is kind of like how capitalism would want you to describe it, because I would see it as someone becoming a capitalist and getting all this money. And then realizing it's not really making society as good as they would like it to be, because mm-hmm. like a, like you're if you're a banker, your job as a banker is mostly to like hold people's money, I hold people's money, so and make then, it more so, for you. Well, you, frankly, like you need to hold people's money so that it's harder for them to get robbed. Yeah, and then sure. you make money by like giving people loans so that they can then build stuff and create things and you get interest off of those loans because then they make something that's profitable so like the concept of being a banker is like a social good Mm. but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to provide a social good and if you have all this money and you're one of the wealthiest families in europe and europe's still kind of in the dark ages and you have a bunch of cash you might look at and say capitalism hasn't benefited society to the degree that i thought it would be because i because they straight up have a job that is the focal point of capitalism which is moving money around yeah like because this is this is wonky but like there's a difference between money and capital like money is something yeah. that you can save once money is like no longer in circulation it's no longer capital like capital is money and movement. movement and so right. like a banker clearly a banker has to save and keep reserves for like the solvency of the bank, but what banks actually do is make sure that money's moving around so that people can use it to buy stuff and keep mm, capitalism going. Because if
1: everybody was just holding cash and there was no intermediary, it wouldn't exchange hands and no other ideas could be made. You right. just have people top and bottom. Exactly. You know
0: I mean? Like if I have a bunch of cash and it's just hidden in my mattress that money doesn't help anybody doesn't exist to the world really until I make it emerge from my mattress. And then once it's emerged, now it can do stuff to benefit society. Mm. But up until then it's like, it doesn't even exist. And that goes into the question of like, what's the purpose or meaning of money? Like money is a thing that you have that you use to buy stuff that has meaning such as like food or a house or clothes, stuff that can provide with me, but money itself Doesn't provide any meaning, and the 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 dynamic is is that no matter how hungry you are, you don't need to eat fifty times a day. Yeah, you know, like there's gonna be a cap on the amount of food you can eat. There's gonna be a cap on the amount of clothes you can wear. Be a cap on the amount of houses or cars you can have. So the stuff that has meaning, there's actually a ceiling. There's a cap. You can you can hit the ceiling, Mm. and at a certain point, like if you have ten houses. You're like, I'm not using four of these houses. I need to sell these. That's a big bar. The things that you need is actually a cap for There's a, there's a ceiling. But money is a thing that you can constantly make an infinite amount of. Yeah. You can always get more money. And right. so as you make more money and you can't buy stuff that has meaning, now you have to find a way to make your money meaningful. Yeah, And that in many ways is the inversion of capitalism. Right. Um, because you're just acquiring capital because move money's moving around you know and so like i would say that these the medicis just like plenty of other people like like Karl marx was funded by angles and his dad ran like a factory in england and just had a bunch of money and he angles is like we're making all this money by ruining people's lives and lock him in factories for like 16 hours a day let me use this money to do something good like make sure that Karl marx is able to live and mm-hmm. not be poor like a lot of a lot of uh, really powerful thinkers were able to think because like capitalists got near the end of their their professional career and realized that they have all this mm. money and that the return that they thought accumulating money was going to give them was not nearly as great as it should have been and now they need to try to use that money for good
1: so that goes back to what kind of what i was saying in like the beginning of our conversation where it was like when you understood like the concept early on in your childhood about like why this was messed up or like how you come into this in your 20s like you had Older people with cash that were like, "Whoa, I didn't get this," and now they're having that crisis of thought. Now they're like using it to influence of some influence something in ways.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Like you know, we live in a place that acquire. You know, people try to derive meaning from money, right? And having a lot of money should give you meaning. But like, money is a thing that doesn't have meaning. Doesn't have meaning. It's supposed to be used to acquire things that give you meaning. But like, if you have money in a couch and no one knows it exists, then it's meaningless until it emerges and then you do something meaningful with it. I dig it. And so, <laughs> like, so, uh, so, I don't know what the question was. Now. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, but... it, was the, it was about the de' medicis and how this came yeah. into it. So, like, you know, frankly, I think at a certain point people realize that they need to start using their resources, whether that's money or just being a nice person to do stuff that is meaningful and can make the world a better place because otherwise it's just like what are we doing yeah um and my goal with scl is to empower people with language and ideas and philosophies to make the world better and a key way to do that is to be able to articulate the flaws in the world that you currently live in yeah and that's that's kind of that's it
1: dope well um Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, as we wind things down, actually, um, I want to ask you, you know, we've talked a lot about content and ethnocide and eftopia. And so what kind of content have you been taking in recently, whether it's TV, movies, books, music, or anything that you see as like um, kind of creating that space of Evtopia or just something that like is inspiring you to think in those ways right now?
0: Um, well... So that's a good question, because I I have been focused most of my life on articulating and understanding ethnocide, and so the process of doing evtopian stuff is actually still like a daily struggle for yeah, me. Yeah, Harper, I, I have I have habits more geared towards looking at like the ethnocidal abyss and yeah. creating evtopian space. So uh, one thing I do here at Eaton is I go to the meditation every day. That's mm-hmm. quite helpful for me. Um I I try to I, I I try to create routines where I wake up in the morning and and articulate like positive messages and what I want to do throughout the day. Yeah. Um uh I I ride my bike. That's something that really clears my head and I try not to ride my bike too fast where I like I'm competing with yeah. cars and it becomes like an an activity that's that's just filled with anxiety and not just like like casual contemplation and like meditation and movement, yeah. and movement as i like make sure my body doesn't fall apart and so there's there's a lot of like micro um Eftopian stuff that i try to do to make sure that i'm good at it because i i need to be good at that and for my work it's like good at making yourself feel good right like if i if i want to help people feel good and create good places and good spaces I have to put forth the effort, my on well, my myself. myself right. I, the the key thing I think is to always acknowledge that it is a struggle. Like nothing, nothing in existence doesn't come with a struggle. Like you have to do things all the time. Like food just doesn't magically appear. You have right. to do something to get it. You know, like waking up in the morning, your body does ache. You know, mm-hmm. like like walking down the street, that's actually like a subtle pounding on your body every day right. these are just like struggles that we're so accustomed to that we don't perceive it as that but it's all like a struggle and you have to make sure that you have a a, a philosophical meaningful understanding as to why you do stuff so that you feel empowered as you go through like your that struggle yeah. and so I'm in, I'm in a stage where I I'm experimenting a lot and to make sure I find the best routine for myself um but as for books, right now, I'm working on a book talking about, like, ethnocide and eftopia, and I'm still in the, the art the describing the impacts of ethnocide. So the books that I'm bringing right now are very ethnocidal. Yeah. And I, it, it means that I need meditation <laughs> to bring yourself back <laughs> up. I can understand Are you going to make that. it to
1: meditation on
0: time? Got no, I'm no, I'm not. No, we're going to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, uh, yeah, you know, with that being said, you know, you know, thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Um, I know you've already done the drop on like where people can find you, but again, you know, where can people find more information about uh, the Sustainable Culture Lab? Um, how can they sign up for emails and things like that?
0: Let yeah, us know. Perfect. Uh, the website is scl dot community. On that, you can learn about our work. You can sign up for the newsletter. You can send me emails. You can do that on Twitter. It's scl underscore community. Instagram, it's scl underscore community. My name is Barrett Holmes Pittner. I'm the only person that I know with that name. So if you Google that, <laughs> you'll see me uh, on the Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. On the internets. On the internets. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that's that's really it. Amazing. Well, thank you for joining us, sir. And thank you to
1: my co-host, Fatih, today. And you'll catch me, OG Baca, no longer the Hair Naughty Guy Body, on another mm-hmm. episode of uh, Activated. And maybe next time we'll see Moss with us, too.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That would be nice. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. All right, hi, lettuce. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Handshakes, handshakes. Thanks for listening.